Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. The Houseman XP Podcast Network is taking you on the journey. Your host, Master Trainer Heath Hyatt, will combine his decades of experience as a houndsman and as a professional trainer that will light the path forward and make our packs lighter on this lifelong journey to become better hunters and houndsmen. There are no shortcuts, so lace up those boots and grab a dog leash. The journey begins now. Hey guys, The Journey on Houndsman XP is teamed up with Go Wild. Go Wild is a social media platform that was made for hunters by hunters. If you guys and gals have listened to any of the other podcasts that I've been on, you know what a huge outdoor enthusiast I am. I love being in the woods with my hounds. There's nothing more exciting than hearing the thunder of a spring gobbler. I love fishing for trout in the brooks and the streams, and I love being on the river chasing that ever-elusive fish of a thousand casts, the muskie. Go Wild is the place that I can post my trophies, hunts, and memories without being censored. But Go Wild is so much more than that. It's a place to share your stories, sharpen your skills, hone your tactics, get gear reviews, and shop for anything outdoors. When you make a purchase from the Go Wild store, everything is free shipping. Anything that you purchase anywhere in the country, no matter how big, free shipping. So go down to the show notes, click on the Go Wild link at the bottom, and get signed up today. And let's go wild. If y'all purchase anything from Go Wild, Make sure that you're using the Houndsman XP promo code. And that code is going to be HXP10. So when you go in there and you download your cart, and you come up to the bottom and it says promo code, add Houndsman XP to it. On today's episode, I'm going to follow back up with Clinton Sillers from South Africa. Clinton has a vast knowledge of training dogs and hounds in extreme environments, to say the least. He has an insight on climates most of us are not used to, but it's relevant to the guys out west who dry ground hunt. We talk about training dogs, elements of weather, humidity, and we go over one of the most confusing things on both law enforcement and hound training, the scent pool. Guys, this episode is jam-packed full of valuable information. I'm Heath Hyatt, your host, and this is The Journey. Clinton, how is everything down in South Africa today? Hi, Heath. Um, We're doing well, thank you. Uh, Nice. Thank you for inviting me back. We've had... um, 
a really bad electrical storm last night where, uh, you know, it, it was very static. And we have, we, we're known for our basically called high felt thunderstorms. So it's it's mm -hmm. extremely static and it's like a lot of, lot of lightning and rumbling and everything else. That was, it was quite hectic, but fortunately it was followed up with, you know, quite decent rains without any wind. So we didn't have any damage. We had, we had about an inch and a half of rain, which is absolutely fantastic because it's it's at the end of our raining season and our rain season started well and then it became very dry in the middle of the season and um, so we need to you know to get a bit of play a bit of catch up just to get water back into the earth dams and stuff and you know just to extend our, our grazing and stuff for the commercial farmers in the area um, where I'm based it is it's a dry area um, traditionally um, we are almost classified as semi-desert so we we have very hot days the nights can get extremely cold and you know we do have you know dry spells that could run upwards of five six years where it gets ridiculously ridiculously hot and dry and then you know we have good years like this is now the second third year that you know the rains have been forthcoming and you know things are looking a bit better so when you say when you say a couple of years with that, like, is that without no rain or just like a shower and it's done? It's not putting water back into the earth. No, it's just, uh, you know, we, we have way, way below average. We might, might end up having 35% of our average rainfall for over a three, four year period, mm -hmm. which then leads to, you know, some of your, some of your, your, trees start dying off, um, you know, you start overgrazing your vegetation because your grasses tend to disappear, your ground tables starts to go down. So a lot of people are putting down, you know, new wells and that kind of that kind of thing. It's it's a cyclical thing. Um, you know, it's been going on for for decades and centuries probably. Um, but yeah, we, we can have some really bad droughts. And what I've found is the drier it gets, just the hotter it gets. It's as if the earth just doesn't cool down. And, um, you know, we, I'm not in the, you know, not in the hottest of places, but we, we comfortably run over, you know, over 40, 42, 44 degrees Celsius, which is probably about in the vicinity of about 105 Fahrenheit your side. So it, it can get properly hot out here. Oh, wow. And, how does that like? How does that affect the livestock and the farming? Like, to me, it seems almost if you don't have water, things don't grow. They don't, um, and you know, it creates a serious problem because what people do is they, they, you know, we've had a large, large part of the country has has been in a serious drought, and we've got an area it's actually called uh, Bushmanland, which directly translated translates to Bushmanland, where they haven't had any rain in 14 years, oh. and um, you know it's just everything is just turned to dust, and you know so what happens is everyone starts selling, and then the market gets flooded, and then the prices drop. And then in the shops, they push the prices up. And because there's a drought, they say meat's expensive because there's a drought. But meanwhile, you know, the whole market is flooded. And then, you know, the people try and live off that money and try and sustain themselves until the rain comes. And then when the rain comes, you, you, you can't sell produce because you have to build up your, your stock and your flock numbers again. 
Um, and that is when you do have a shortage, and that is when you know the prices are then obviously going up because for the you know for real reasons. But um, it's cyclical, and fortunately, you know, in in South Africa, it's not. You know, just as as one part of the country might be going into into a drought, other parts of country might be experiencing floods. You know, so it's actually a very weird dynamic, um, and you'll find that. You know, over the long run, things balance themselves out quite nicely because we, you know, the one guys are having a really good season. On the other side, it might be, you know, by us, it's more the the southern and the western parts of the country is generally traditionally very, very dry. But the northern parts where I am can either have really good rains or we can have no rains. By us, it's very much a Jekyll and Hyde kind of thing. Um, you know, when it it, it can rain really, really well, uh, and like I said, we can we we can go three, four years with very little rain as well, and and that is it, it does a lot of damage. It doesn't do damage to to the area if you can keep the the livestock off, but I mean you can't sell all your livestock. We're not getting soil degradation, and erosion, and you know all of these type of things. And where I live, it's extremely mountainous, mm-hmm. and um, when you start stripping off your vegetation. And, uh, you know, the, when the big rains do come, you've got no retention of that water. That water runs away and it takes your topsoil with you. Um, so our biggest, our biggest challenge is actually managing, um, you know, just managing our, our soil and our vegetation. And the only way we can do that is, is by, you know, cutting the, the, the livestock numbers down, you know, drastically. And, uh, you know, that's all you can really do. And then sometimes you think, well, you know, just hold on. Next year is around the corner. The rain, the rain season is almost here. And then rain season comes and you get a few early showers and it looks promising. And then the rain stays away again. So it is farming. <laughs> farming is feast or famine. It's, it's either, you know, it's the same as the, the one area we had that's just come out of, of a serious drought. Um, they've just had flash floods. And... Um, you know that that is just just as as devastating. It's you know it helps for the rivers and and for the water table and stuff. But for the agricultural sector, and the guys have just just, just planted, and um, you know half of the half of the the crops and stuff is literally washed away, and you know all that topsoil and everything gets lost. So it's difficult. Um, I suppose it's the same everywhere in the world. Um, you know, we just we more prone to drought than than most countries. So, with that said, how does that affect your training, your trailing, and your success with those dogs? I know we had talked a little bit before we started recording, and you said the rain had dropped the temperature, the humidity was up, and you said your your male dog was on fire. Tell 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 me and us about that. Yeah, to give you an example, I've got um, you know one of these youngsters that I got from from Tianjin Karika. I mean, he's nine months old. He he's naturally a, a slow dog. Um, he's got a really deep nose, very very methodical, and um, you know he's 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 not a racer. And we've now gone through two months of relatively dry and, and hot. And by us, the humidity is low. I mean, we were running 18% humidity-wise. And then we had a, a small little shower. 
and I took him out the next morning and, you know, he was really on fire. And then I took him out yesterday and it had cooled down and the humidity was up to about 60 odd. And, you know, you, he was just, he was just, you know, plowing through everything. I could hardly hold on to him. I mean, he, he was on a, on a track that was an hour old, but he wasn't even putting his head down. I mean, he was literally, you know, his head was up and he was just in full odor. And I mean, this is a dog that normally, very methodically, you can actually hear him thinking, you know, as he works along. So uh, it was as if that, that trail was five minutes old. Um, so it's, it's very, very interesting, you know, to see what huge effect uh, temperature and obviously humidity has. Um, you know, for us normally... I only see the effect on, on vegetation. When you go from very little vegetation to better vegetation, the dogs start speeding up a bit and, you know, you can see it becomes easier for them. But with the, um, I almost want to say the humidity seems to, you know, the moment we go below 30%, it's as if the dogs really, really, really battle. And, um, well, I say battle, really, really slow down in any case. And um, Now, you're saying, let me make sure I understand. So you're saying when the humidity is below 30, you're saying the dogs struggle? Well, they definitely slow down. Okay. And yep. uh, they, have, they, have, they have to work the trail. You can clearly see the dogs are working the trail. It's not just, um, you know, it's not easy for them. And, uh, you know, we regularly, in winter, we go down to 12 15% humidity. And, and the dogs manage. But I think what makes it more difficult for us in winter is, we often lose all of our ground cover. In other words, it would just be baked earth. Um, we mm -hmm. live in the area that, that I'm in. Is, it's called the Bushveld Complex. So it's actually, it's almost almost shrub, shrub and trees. Mm -hmm. And it has intermittent grasses. But these grasses, they go into seed and they disappear. Um, you know, not every winter, if you've had a very, very good summer with late summer rains, you know, some of the, the grasses remain. But if it's been fairly dry here, the grasses are, are all but non-existent. And then you have this this hard, you either have sand or depending which side you go, you either have sand or you have really hard baked earth. Um, the shrubs and that definitely do hold scent and, you know, there's shade under there and you'll find the dogs are actually hunting the shade spots and looking for the shrubs. It's not an A to B trap. The dogs are starting to, it's almost like connecting the dots yes. where you can see the dog has veered off a bit. He's come into scent. He's worked it. He's gone into the, let's call it the open area and he starts working it. He's not comfortable. He goes to the other side where there's more shade. And I find the dogs start to learn this very, very quickly. I think it's it's almost like you would do with your hard surface work. I think it becomes a little bit more similar to that type of stuff where you have odor that's just no longer existent and you're looking for any any bit of moisture, any bit of shade, um, something that will hold scent better. And that's where the dogs then gravitate to and they start working it out that way. Yeah, so I want to paint a picture for you know, the guys that are hunting, um, and, you know, we're still talking about trailing, the same purpose, same mission, but, you know, when you're hunting and you're, you're running an old track, um, and I've got a follow-up question for that too, Clint. So when you're hunting and you're running an old track and, you know, those dogs, if you've got a good open mouth dog, um, and that dog's giving good mouth and then he shuts up and, 
you know, you may have 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes that go by, and then, you know, that dog opens again and letting you know that he's acquired the track again. You know, that is the, that is the connecting the dots. You know, that dog is yeah. working stumps and logs and bushes. Um, and I put this phrase out there when Jeff and I had, I had Jeff on. Um, we call it twigging. When my dog's up on the laurels mm-hmm. or the rhododendrons and they're smelling up on the bushes, I know that bears went through there and they're picking up that, that odor off his body. Like that, that, that bear yep. has brushed up against that, that yep. um, shrubbery, whatever it may be. And, you know, it's not always, you know, I think sometimes in our minds that we, we think that it's just like um, a drag. You drag a, a piece of hide through your yard and that's what the dog's smelling. And that's so far from actually what's happening with the dog and the way they're working. And the connect the dots is a, is a great analogy. Um, and we teach it, you know, I teach it in my tracking school when I'm teaching a a dog, you know, we, I try to have them visualize, you know, this dog's connecting the dots. Like he's putting, he's putting the pieces of the puzzle together for you. Um, so yes, I, I'm glad that you're using the same, you know, terminology that, that we use <coughs> with that. And I want to go back to that follow-up question on the humidity. So below 30% humidity, um, you, the dogs struggle. Um, I think I'm with you. I kind of like that, that 60 and 70% humidity, but we have to pair, we have to pair the other elements with that. It's not just the humidity alone. Like, what what is what is your temperature outside? You know, what time of day is this? You know, is it summer or winter? Like, when you're in that sixty percent, like you said that you know, your dog was you know just running basically with his head up. Like, what was the other elements that linked that 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 made that scent picture that way? Yeah, and I look normally, you know, with when we have that type of humidity, it's normally not too early, even early mornings mm-hmm. when it's rained, the humidity might be 40, 50. Mm-hmm. But what I find is that the moment the sun starts, you know, getting out behind the clouds, let's say nine o'clock, 10 o'clock in the morning, and you start getting a bit of proper radiation, um, you know, then the humidity spikes very, very quickly. And, um, you know, the, the odor is very strong, but the the scent does weird things. Mm. Um, I think you start getting, I almost want to use the words, probably not the correct term, you start getting a bit of a thermaline effect mm-hmm. where you'll, you'll have scent actually rising and getting deposited. So even though the dog is very strong on odor, you'll find that it tends to deviate to the side a bit and he investigates and he comes back. It's as if you have these pockets of scent that are you know literally flowing and, and they get picked up and they get deposited again. Um, when it cools, the moment it starts cooling down, then that seems to be a lot easier. The dogs just run A to B. It's a pretty straight line, and they're very very you know dedicated to the actual you know track itself. Mm-hmm. But I found when it starts getting you know, when it starts getting hot like that, I always look up. We have a lot of birds of prey, and when there's when the birds of prey are thermaling, um, those are normally not ideal conditions to to be running a dog because you have a lot of 
you know, a lot of these small mini thermals coming through and, you know, picking air up and depositing it, you know, just literally 100 meters further. Uh, but the dogs, the dogs learn to work those conditions. It's just the, what I find is the handlers don't trust their dogs when they start doing that. You know, they can see the dogs going in a direction, the dog is an odor, mm-hmm. and then the dog veers off and investigates and, you know, they think the dog is trashing. And they start correcting the dog and telling the dog, you know, to get back at work. But the dog is still in the same odor. It's just there's a pocket there. And, um, you know, he just wants to satisfy himself. And this is the problem, you know, with these, it's very similar. It's basically aerial scent. So you get the very, very much the same type of scenario than you would with a scent pool. Um, And with some dogs, you know, they really battle with scent pools unless, you know, you've given them enough exposure on it. And, um, you know, I, I had a, I had a, a young dog yesterday where with this high humidity and this thermaline, he ran, you know, he really ran the track well. And then when he, when he hit the scent cone, he was a bit confused. You know, he didn't quite know, you know, he was working around it and you could see he was getting a bit stuck. There was just so much odor and I, you know, the person had been sitting for quite some time and with the type of trailing I do, um, you know, my dogs often trail without someone at the end. And um, so every time I have people, you know, I make use of the opportunity to put them at the end to expose my dogs to the scent cones and, you know, all, all of that at the end. So he hasn't had a lot of that. And I could see it because, you know, he, he had to really figure it out and he would get a bit stuck and then he'd work around the edges and then he'd come back in. And he figured it out well enough. What I normally do when that starts happening, I just drop the trailing line um, because, you know, I don't want the dog still getting himself wound up around shrub while he's trying to work work something. And, um, you know, so I normally just drop the trailing line and I allow the dogs to autonomously figure out the problem by themselves. Um, I find as as people we we tend to want to guide the dogs because we know where the high, where mm-hmm. where the runner is. But I mean we have no we have no <laughs> idea what what the odor is doing. Yeah, I <laughs> I want to talk. I want to go back and talk about scent pools because um, that dives into a whole different topic. But I want your take on it. But. What so I was running a uh, a tracking class um, last week week yeah last week um, week before last and um, what you're tell what you're saying there with the um, dropping the lead so I've got a I've got a really good handler that's got a, a young German short hair pointer the dog's got loads of potential and you know pointers are tip you know a lot of pointers like to 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 have that head up. You know, that's their, that's their natural, yep. that's genetic programmed. Um, so we got into this open field. Uh, it was a, a cut cornfield, so it had been cut. The wind was blowing um, from, from the west to the east. It was blowing across the field from our right to our left. And we, the dog got in there, and the dog just started working and working and working and working. And, like, I was watching the handler. And I knew the handler was doing exactly what you just said. The handler was trying to direct the dog without understanding the complete process. And I told him, I said, just drop the lead. He said, what? I said, just drop the lead. And we were a good 200 yards from 
the sus the the person hiding. I knew where the person was. He yeah. didn't, and he dropped the lead on this dog. Same thing, scent cone, one side, left side, right side, and it got smaller and smaller. And he got <laughs> up. Now here's another thing. So a tractor trailer is coming out of this area, so it's not. I mean, it's not running wide open. The tractor trailer's running, you know, 15 mile an hour. The dog's headed right to the tractor trailer, and I'm like, Lord have mercy, do not chase that truck out of here. <laughs> and the dog um, had veered left. The truck was going right. Then the dog makes a hard turn right and is going right to the tractor trailer, and that dog spins on a dime and, bam, right into the suspect. And, you know, standing back, and I'm like, okay, do you see – how hard it was for that dog to work that out with that wind blowing and how hard you were holding yeah. him back from doing that exact thing that you want him to do. And it, you know, it was one of those aha moments like, yeah, I get it. And I said, when it gets, when it gets hard and it gets tough and you have the ability to turn your dog loose, let him self discover. And I know that, you know, we can't use that word enough is just let the dogs do their thing. And best advice ever. <laughs> yes, I mean, and even in the um the hound world, let's go back to the hunting the hunting world. And this is one of the things that I see mm-hmm. amongst my group that I hunt with and I see it uh everywhere I go and hunt is everybody wants to help the dog. Like just let yep. the dog do his thing. If he don't find it or he doesn't succeed, that is a learning lesson for him. He will learn from that and do better next time. And it's a process. You you know, um, you and I had just had this uh, conversation. Uh, Jeff had posted a, a video of a dog, uh, a hound, getting into a proximity. So I'll explain that real quick to the listeners. A proximity alert is the dog picks up the airborne scent of the individual that he's tracking. So... Nose comes from from ground to air. Boom. Ground to air. Ground to air. He's picking his head up. He's popping. All right. And what people don't understand is that airborne odor is stronger than the ground odor, and the dogs naturally pick it up. Agree? It always trumps the, the trailing odor. Correct. The airborne odor always gets first. Okay. So... He posts this video, and he says dog got in proximity, which means he smelt the airborne odor, and then wind came through, and the dog starts chasing odor, which means he was going to the edge of the scent cones, which that scent cone could be 50 foot or 500 foot, depending on how hard the wind's blowing. The same dog that I just told you about, the German, the young German shorthair pointer, had the exact same thing happen on the exact day that Jeff posted that video. And then Clinton, he starts laughing because he's like, I had the same thing happen. Like, same thing. So you and I are, I mean, continents away from each other, dealing with the same issues, which makes it universal for for dog handlers and hounds. And, you know, watching that video, and, you know, Jeff says it, we just talked about it. The dog has to self. The dog has to figure it out. Uh, we can't smell and we can't. We can't do some of those things for that dog. And failure is a part of success. 
you got to have uh, you got to have failure and learning lessons to be more successful. And that's how your your older dogs, guys that are your phenomenal phenomenal big game hounds or your coon hounds or you know your sight hound Seth, like they've made mistakes and they've learned from them and then they learn how to navigate through that process and that allows them to be able to catch the game that you're asking them to catch. So, yeah, I, I had him drop the lead, watch the dog. We sat back and watched the dog from 200 yards away, and it was just, you know, I love that's, – that's one of the things about training that I love is watching those dogs work and figure things out. And when that light bulb goes off in their head, like, that's, that's a rewarding um, thing for me. The journey on Houndsman XP has teamed up with one TDC. This dual action support for oral health and mobility in our dogs. This unique supplement is so effective that it is recommended by top veterinarian experts worldwide to maintain and improve our dog's health in four different areas. Their oral health, hips, joints, and muscles, skin, coat, energy, and recovery. Guys, I've been using this product for the last six months and it has been a game changer for me. If you're looking for something to help with the overall health of your dog, go to WorkSoWell.com and give this product a try. It is highly recommended by Houndsman XP here on The Journey. I'm 100% with you on that. You know, when I, I see young handlers and they're trailing the dogs and, um, you know, when the dog runs into a bit of a, of a scenario where he's battling, um, you know, you actually see the handlers become defeated and because the dog is, you know, there's a bit of conflict there that the dog needs to resolve. And, you know, I say to them, this, this is the beautiful part. This is the, you know, this, this, this is what it's about because this is where the wheels are turning and this is where the learning is taking place. And this is where the dog is actually stretching his legs and he's taking what he knows and he's building on that and he's, he's you know, basically increasing his repertoire in terms of understanding how odor and stuff works. So I'm in full agreement, you know, when a dog goes off the trail, that's never a problem to me. I want to see what he does to get back on trail because mm-hmm. that's where, where the things start happening. So, um, you know, it's even when, when we imprint dogs on, on trace, for instance, when, you know, Whenever the dog goes off, you know, you see people think, oh, damn, you know, dog was doing so well. The dog needs to go off and not get paid, and it needs to come back so that it gets paid, and it needs to make these decisions completely by itself. Um, and I think the biggest issue we have as, as handlers is we're not seeing what the dog is seeing. We have a, a mental picture of where the trail is, hmm. and we're not seeing that trail in terms of odor. And what the odor does and the effect of the wind and the effect of hills and, and, and gullies and that kind of stuff. And the very first thing, you know, I the only thing I disagreed with Jeff initially was the fact that he started his dogs blind right from the start. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I thought to myself, you need to first get a foundation, make sure the dog is fairly solid. And then, I, you know, blind is important. Now I have to eat humble pie. And I have to say to him, <laughs> blind, blind right from the start. Because while you are teaching that dog, you are actually influencing him and you are yes. 
pulling him off odors that he should be on and you're creating all sorts of conflict. And what I have found with students is and handlers, if you start them on known trails, it's an incredibly stressful thing for them to go off and start doing blind. And because they know the trail, they're not reading the dog. As long as the dog is on, they, they're fine. And if the dog is off, they know the dog is off or they think the dog is off. Whereas if you go blind right from the start, that handler needs to start learning his dog's behavior and his dog's cues. And um, you, there's never an influence. So that is, that is honestly the only thing that I thought I didn't agree with, with Jeff's work initially. And then as I, you know, got into trailing more and more and I started going blind earlier and earlier, I realized that the only truth is a blind trail. And, um, you know, for that reason, even if I've, I've laid a trail, or, you know, I, I, I know where the trail is right from the start, I dropped the leash because then it's still blind for the dog at least. Mm-hmm. And I have no influence on the dog. Yeah, I I had um, so th- as that class went on, I had a couple of my newer handlers, newer, um, very uh, very new in the canine handling. And as I run tracks with them, I realized that they really didn't know how to read their dogs. Um, and I mm-hmm. had a couple of guys that were not in my group that had come from outside our group throughout the state and same problem. Like you guys, you aren't, you aren't recognizing when your dog is out of odor. And here's the thing that really, um, when we have training next Monday, we're going to sit down and discuss this is the amount of help they try to give the dogs clicking, hollering, pointing guys and hound guys. This, I mean, this is for you too. Dogs are 80% nonverbal. 80% of their communication is nonverbal. You don't need to be saying, you know, especially for my canine guys, you know, you know, get back to work or, um, you know, mm. they keep giving the track command. And I had two guys that was, that was not a part of our group that were there. And I, and I told them, I'm like, guys, every time you tell this dog to go track and he doesn't find a track, and he doesn't get a reward, he's going to go find something to track. So get, you know, exactly. get away from the verbiage and get away from, the, from assisting the dog. And I had this conversation with one of the guys that I hunt with. He's got a young dog. She's doing really well. And, you know, I told him, I'm like, you've got to let her fail. You've got to leave her alone and let her figure it out. She can smell stuff you never know that is in this world. She knows better. And she's genetically programmed to do that, and it's a process. Just let her let her learn. Let her learn. And at four years old, I mean, she's a year old. When she's four year old, you're going to have a phenomenal mm. specimen of a hound. Um, but yeah, to, and to, it's it's an it's an extremely difficult thing for people to take a back seat and allow the learning process to happen. The very first thing I say to anybody that I I work with when we work dogs is not a sound. Mm -hmm. I don't want you praising your dog. I don't want you talking to you. I've never seen, you know, 
any negative effects from little to no impetus from the handler when dogs are working, but I've seen a hell of a lot of problems, <laughs> you know, due to people constantly, every time you praise the dog, the dog's looking over his shoulder. Meanwhile, he was trashing on Coyote, bloody scat, and when you rewarded him at that moment, and, um, you know, so for me, uh, I agree. I don't like, you know, especially on the anti-poaching side, you can't be talking to your dog consistently when you are, you know, tracking in the night, you know, and you're trying to find poachers. So, you know, I believe, I don't think, any time there's verbal, you know, when I'm verbal with a dog literally is when I, I ask them to take a track and when I, when I thank them at the end, when I, you know, praise them. There's virtually nothing in between. Uh, if I see a dog that's gone, has lost the track and he's worked really hard and I see him pick it up and I see there's a footprint lying there and I'm 100% sure I might tell him, you know, good dog. You know, just especially the younger dogs, just that little bit of confirmation. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I believe we are our dog's biggest downfall when it comes to, <laughs> comes to training. <laughs> We are. I mean, there's no, there's no question about it that we are the Achilles heel of our dogs. Yeah. No, undoubtedly. So I want to go back, Clint. I want to go back to the scent pool. And first I want to explain what a scent pool is. And I know that on some of the prior podcasts that we've talked about it, but in case you're a first time listener, we're glad to have you on, but I'm going to explain what a scent pool is. And Clinton, I want your take on what you see when your dogs hit a scent pool, the behavior that you see, and some of the things that um, come out of that. So a scent pool is, uh, and this is how I describe it when I'm teaching new handlers, is if I take a glass of water and I tilt it to where it starts dripping and it hits the table or the countertop, the more it drips, the more it pulls. So that water's going from the glass to the countertop and it's getting bigger and it's, it went to a drop to two drops to a little puddle to a, a medium sized puddle. And then all of a sudden I have a glass of water on the countertop that may spread all the way across the countertop. So if you can put that into a visual, a scent pool is when a person or animal is in one place for a long period of time and their odor um, or their scent. Uh, we got into that too. We'll, we'll call it scent. When their scent starts um, building and getting bigger and stronger and bigger and stronger and bigger and bigger. And the longer they're there, the more that odor spreads throughout an area that in reality could cover the size of a football field. Just to give you a visual and put that in context for you guys. So a scent pool is when somebody or something sets still that puts off odor, scent, and the longer they sit there, the more the scent spreads. So, Clinton, what when your dogs hit a scent pool, when you run into that, that first, how do you recognize it? And then what happens to the dog's behavior? All right. Firstly, I think that's a fantastic uh, analogy. I'm going to definitely use it. I've always said to people, you know, if, if your neighbor is barbecuing, um, you always know which neighbor it's barbecuing because you're standing outside. But, but if your wife is, you know, if your wife has burned food in the house, 
and you had to take a stranger and blindfold them and put them in a house and say, go and put off the, go and put off the oven, um, that person wouldn't be able to find the oven based on scent because the whole place is just totally flooded. Um, mm-hmm. But I really like your analogy very much. Ah. With, uh, inex- with inexperienced handlers or, or even more ex- you know, experienced handlers, what I find is initially when they start, you know, they normally don't pick up. You, f- you start getting these few head, head pops before they actually hit the scent pool. And, uh, you know, where the dog is trailing and then his head comes up and he's trailing and his head comes up. And then after that, you might find that it becomes a little bit more directional. And, you know, the dog is, is starting to, you know, look into a bit of an area. And then when they hit the scent pool, most of the time the handlers think the dog has literally lost the trail. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Um, because mm-hmm. the, dog is, his dog, the dog's head comes up and he's now – not directional. He's actually starting to hunt to the left. He might even turn around and start and hunt to the right. So now it looks like a dog that's trying to reacquire a trail. And he was trailing beautifully and suddenly, boom, the dog has run into trouble. And that's what I get most often than not. People, I say to, I'll ask people what's happening now. And I say to my dog's no longer on trail. He's hunting for odor. Uh, that is the I would say 70% of time, the most common thing. So what I find is, you know, there's a lot of things in terms of, of wind direction and wind speed. All of these things play a role. If the wind is blowing towards you and it's relatively strong, um, the dogs generally work into it quite nicely. You know, they don't, you know, they don't go too wide. They'll negotiate it quite easily. But what I find is if it's fairly dead or the person sitting in a depression, and you have that odor, like you said, that glass of water. You have a half a football field that's just totally flooded with odor. The dogs generally work around the edges, and they'll normally continue doing this until they get to the downwind side of, of the runner. And then they'll suddenly turn in with you know more purpose, and they'll start pulling you, and they'll go straight up to the, straight up to the runner. But it creates a lot of confusion for handlers. Um, and I see people criticizing their dogs for literally running, you know, going past the runner and, you know, not indicating the runner, but you'll, the runner might be elevated into a tree and there's wind, you know, taking that scent pool and really pushing it beyond him. And the dog first goes behind, starts popping his head, turns around, and then with his head up runs basically straight back up. So, yeah, for me, it's, it differs. I've seen dogs work it completely different in different conditions. I had a, a bloodhound, a really nice bloodhound that I trained up for a guy, and um, they do rural safety, and they've got drones and everything else. And they were, they were chasing assailants, and they were doing really well. It's a very open area, and, um, you know, the dog – started popping the head and he said, let's rest the dog a little bit. And he phoned me and he told me what's happening. And he, I said, how strong was she on the trail? He said, well, her head was down and she was just dragging. You know, he had to just, and I said, and then, and he said, well, then her head came up and she went left and she went right and he stopped. And I said to him, those guys are in front of you. He said, no, it's completely flat. He said, there's, you know, visibility is perfectly good. I said, have you got a drone? He said, yes. I said, put up the drone. And literally 25 meters ahead of them, there was a ditch, just a little, a little donga. And there were two, two armed assailants lying on their backs with their pistols pointing up. 
waiting for these guys to pass. Mm. And um, the dog, the dog gave him a very, very good proximity, and he actually thought that you know she ran out of gas and she was now starting to get tired. So it's a very interesting field. Um, it's something I still battle with. I don't always get it right. Sometimes you misread the dog. You know it's a proximity, but you 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 want to help the dog, and this is why I've just you know I just dropped the leash, especially the inexperienced dogs, and you get frustrated because they'll. Especially if it's if it's aerial, they'll turn underneath your your suspect and they'll go back and then they'll work back, and uh, you're so tempted, you know, just to give them that little bit of help. But you know, you're not you're helping yourself. You're not doing the dog any favors. You've got to just bite your lip and and let them work through the process, and they always do. They always manage to understand it, and the next time they do it, so much easier. So that's basically how how I interpret it. Um, you know, I think in in colder climates, you might find that the proximity uh, that your scent cones go a lot further because by us, you know, I think a lot of a lot of the aerial scent actually becomes airborne and, and and starts actually you know getting taken up by thermals and that. But we've had you know I've had 150 meters. You know, when you do a horseshoe on a trail, mm-hmm. and uh, you know I've had dogs trail perfectly, lift their heads turn and go, you know, 90 degrees, 100% in a straight walk to the runner um, just because they've they've picked up his air scent at 150 meters under our conditions. So I can I can imagine under pristine conditions that these, these scent cones could probably be picked up best part of, I almost want to say a quarter of a mile or more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> well, and so why I had you explain that, um, because you're giving a very good uh, description of what happens, and I'm gonna I'm gonna transition this back to the hound world um, because we're running off lead, and this is what I see with my hounds. Um, you've described what I see in the police world, and I could set that scenario up every day in my training, and I can make I can shut a dog down, which means I can go from a good trail and pulling hard, just like you described that bloodhound pulling, 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 and then it's like they run into a fence and they've lost it. Um, I can set that scenario up um, daily in my canine training. Now, let's flip that over to the hound world. Your dogs are, especially you bear hunting guys, you guys that um, are trailing bear, like I'm going to paint this picture because you've seen it a 100,000 times. Your dogs are trailing, they're giving good mouth, they're trailing, they're trailing, they're trailing. And then all of a sudden, boom, you hear them, be, you're, they're quiet. And then you're like, well, what happened? And then 30 seconds later, a minute later, they're roaring. I mean, they're just, they're just, they're open, completely open mouth and they're leaving the country. So what happened is your dog was running that track and he hit a bedding area, a scent pool. The animal was bedded. And the dog hit that scent pool and he shut up because he's trying to figure it out. Just like Clinton said, he's going left, he's going right, he's making circles. He's in the rocks, he's out of the rocks, he's here, he's there. He is, try- he is-, he is trying to figure that out. And we don't have a lead on the back of that dog standing there watching, so we don't see this out in in the woods when we're hunting. We hear it, we hear the dogs giving mouth, giving mouth, giving mouth, and then they shut up. 
And then all of a sudden, like I said, it could be 30 seconds. It could be a minute. It could be a couple minutes. Um, the dogs just, they're, they blow up and they're on the race is on and they work through that scent pool and either the animal has escaped out of the back of that somehow, some way, and they found the exit track or they've jumped the animal up if it was bedded up tight and the race is on. And that is a very good description of a scent pool and what's happening. But the dogs do, they, it's like they've flipped a switch. They go from like trail and trail and trail and trail to almost like you said, Clinton, that they, it's almost like they lost the track. And if we were holding the lead on our hounds, we would think that a lot. But in reality, they're just working the fringes of that scent cone. And that scent cone could be, like we said, size half a football field. They have to work through that to find where the source is at because there's so much odor there. I love the analogy of the toast and trying to find the the oven. So I'm going to use your analogy. Um, but, <clears throat> yeah, so that's kind of a picture of what's happening with the scent pool. And it happens a lot in our hunting, in, in, our, in our hunting. And maybe we recognize it or don't recognize it, but um, if you pay attention – going forward, you're going to hear that and you're going to know exactly what's going on. Give your dogs a little time to work through it. Don't be in a rush. Don't start toning your dogs or hollering for them. Give them time to work that scent cone out. And more than likely, they're going to get that that game up and get him moving. So that was a great discussion on on a scent, on a scent pool. Like it was a great discussion on a scent pool. Right. I think people underestimate the difficulty that a scent pool or scent cone actually poses for the canine. Um, because you're going from a very low threshold that's completely directional, and the next thing, everything is fl- is three-dimensional, and it's fresh, and it's everywhere. And, uh, you know, we always think, well, the dog's now found the bear, or he's found the hog, or he's found the person. You know, the end should be the easiest because there's a lot of scent there. Um, but, you know, the, the converse side of that coin can actually be very, very complicated for a dog to try and actually sort out and understand. It's a lot of odor. I mean, and, and, I mean it's, what, it's what we're explaining, you know. There's a lot of mm-hmm. odor, and <clears throat> I had, I'll give a real quick story. Um, uh, last fall, we had a, a per, per vehicle pursuit um, driver bailed out, took off running. He was in a national forest area, a, a place that I was very familiar with. And he bailed out and run. I show up 30 minutes later. This is, um, I think it's like May, May. It, it was 66 degrees outside, but the humidity was way up. I mean, it was up in the eighties. So I, I literally circled the car to try to find the exit, which I knew the direction he went, but I circled the car Pino picked up the track, acquired the track. We went down over the side of the mountain. Um, and, I mean, Pino's pulling me pretty hard. And, I mean, I'm, we're going down the side of a ridge, so I'm, I'm trying really hard to hold him back and keep him at a good speed. And he throws a proximity, and he stops. And I'm like, crap. Well, we look up, and there's a hat laying beside a tree. So he popped on that hat. <laughs> um so, of course, my team knows what to do. We just called it in, said, hey, we've got a hat here, and we moved on. So we went down off the ridge, left-handed into a hollow, and then Pino turns hard right, 
like I said, I've got a tracking team with me. Um, Pino turns hard right and he goes down. And I mean, he's pulling me like he's like, I'm, I'm literally holding him back, trying to keep him from running us in the ground. Like I'm holding him back. So that's, yeah. he, he was pulling really, really good. Um, and we get down in the base of this hollow and he does the exact same thing, Clinton. It's like he hit a wall, boom, stops. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay. And you know, it's nighttime. I've got a headlamp on, um, visibility's not really good for me. Um, and then he starts working side to side and I'm like, okay, got a scent pool. So I tell my TL, my team leader, I'm like, Hey, we're, we're hitting a scent pool. And all my team knows what a scent pool means. It means, you know, it means high danger. Like that person's either laying here or he was laying here and took off running. So we're in the nighttime, you know, trying to have our light discipline and all that team knows that we're in a scent pool. So Pino works left-handed and I let him work. Like I just, I mean, I've got to hold on to him, but I'm letting him work. I'm letting him do his thing. He makes a huge circle. I mean, a huge circle. And we end up right back where he stopped. And I look at my TL and I'm like, he's laying right here. Like he's laying, just like what you said about those two arm guys. I'm like, he's laying right Mm -hmm. here. So my team, we communicate that to the team. And I, I let Pino work again, and Pino does the exact same thing. Makes a big circle, works in, works around this, um, some blow-down timber, comes right back to the same place. So by this time, we're like, okay, he's here. We we may have to um, do like a search to try to find him. So we split the team up, four-man team. My My rear guard and my right flank decide that they are going to try to do some man tracking, which is visual, okay? Well, they find yeah. in some grass, they find where this guy had went in to some tall grass. It was just above your boot, so, you know, eight inches of grass. They could see where he went through mm-hmm. there. So they're working on that. Me and the TL and the other the flanker, we start working that scent pool again. We work the scent pool. We get to the backside of it. Just like you explained, we get to the backside of it. Pino pops his head, and he literally takes me straight in. And we hit a big, uh, uh, it was an oak tree that had blowed down, and the roots had come up with the tree. And my other two team members were on the other side of those roots, and they had man-tracked him into those roots, and he had buried himself down underneath the roots of that blowed down tree. And we were on the back side of it. Pino finally picked it up and we kind of come to the same place at the same time and was able to locate him. But <laughs> the reason I tell you that and tell the listeners that it took about 30 minutes, 30 minutes for me to get from the car to the scent pool took me about seven to 10 minutes. Easy. Right. And took me 30 minutes to find where that scoundrel was laying because of the scent pool. Like, yeah. it's not easy. No, it's, it's a very, very interesting phenomenon. I would imagine with the, you know, with hunt, hunting with, uh, you know, hounds, you know, I've, I've actually, you know, if you, if you see how smart a lot of these, uh, you know, animals are that are adapted to be hunted, you know, hunting, hunted, you know, they'll, they'll bed down and they'll disappear and then they'll backtrack and, mm-hmm. you know, you see all sorts of funny things going on. So I can imagine, you know, how difficult it must be, you know, just hunting, you know, even simple things like boar, you know, if you look at the, 
the tracking on some of the garments of the guys that have been hunting them, and you you see what those those boar actually do once they start running. You know, with us, our side, our our pigs are smaller, but they're faster, and um, you know they. I almost want to say wilder in the sense that, you know, if there's a dog, you know, if a dog opens up maybe, you know, 300 meters away, the pigs are gone. You know, they just let it rip. Um, and if you see where they go and then they literally come back to where it started and they go, they backtrack the direction that they came. So, you know, you look at these things and you realize that, you know, for a dog to actually do the math and the amount of experience you need to put into them to understand all of these things, it's, it's just absolutely astounding. Yeah, and I think, you know, going from the the the, law, the, the LE training side of things to the hound side of things, and I, I've said this before on, on, on this podcast, that it has it has opened a whole different world of learning for me because I don't get to see a lot of what my hounds do. I turn them loose and I pick them up. Basically, that's the that's the part of it. Mm. I turn them loose. I go to where they're at. I try to follow them. Very very seldom am I laying eyes on them. And yeah. then you know on the in, on the law enforcement side of it, like I've got a thirty foot of lead attached to these dogs every day. I get to watch this behavior every day, and it opened my eyes to what what's going on, what the dogs are doing. Like, um, it was a, it was like eating humble pie because you think, you know what your hounds are doing. And then you go and you start putting a lead on another dog that's doing basically the same thing. And it's like, man, I didn't know nothing. (laughs) Like I didn't realize this stuff was going on or I didn't realize that. Yeah. I know that, you know, my dog can track better in the snow as long as it's not frozen and, Yes, a little bit of moisture mm-hmm. helps my dogs. And, yeah, when it gets hot and the sun's at 12 o'clock, dogs struggle. You know those th- Like, you know, that's just kind of if you pay attention, you you know. But then after doing it, it's like now I know why. Like, I know because this element and this element doesn't line up together. Just like what you said, you know, um, your, air, your air's cooled down, your humidity went up, and now the dog's on fire. And you were talking about um, the the vultures and stuff circling, um, mm. and, and Gavin Lippis uh, actually put this on one of our podcasts. Is you know that you're looking at the barometric pressure, and when the barometric pressure yeah. is high, which we would not think that would be normal, when it's high, everything is good. The air sending ability is good, but when the when the mm. the barometric pressure is low it's pushing that odor straight up in the air. And that's why those vultures are circling is because it's pushing the scent away from the earth. And that's how they're finding that they're, they're, they're dead, they're roadkill or dead animals or whatever they're looking for. Um, you know, it takes on a whole different perspective um, in training and learning. And when you start learning the little tidbits, I think it always gives you an advantage to being better, a better handler, whether it be, hounds and hunting or you know chasing guys down like you do and the stuff that we do i think everything that you can learn and everything that you can do to make yourself more knowledgeable and knowledge is power it makes you better undoubtedly and i i think you know the more we learn the more we realize that 
you know, we're just scratching the tip of the iceberg. You know, there's so much more to learn. And, you know, for by, by me, for instance, we have these high felt thunderstorms where it would be a perfectly clear day. And, you know, within half an hour, you have these huge towering columns of, of Kalimba Nimbus clouds forming. And, you know, if you see that, those guys starting to stack up, you know, you're going to have a hell of a day trailing because, you know, everything is just being sucked up and all the moisture is being sucked up into the, into the atmosphere. So then you need a dog that can go back to the, let's call it the tracking aspect where you can actually work that ground disturbance and is not just fixated on odor. Mm-hmm. You know, it was very interesting, you know, initially um, I heard the term trailing and, you know, but okay, yeah, you know, we're tracking now what's trailing. You go and you look at the, the definition and, you know, trailing, you know, the dog is sense specific and it can do any surfaces and, you know, tracking the dogs following ground disturbance. And then, but then you realize a lot of, a lot of trailing dogs are not sense specific. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just following generic human odor and you realize a lot of tracking. Uh, but then you realize that this is to your surface content, but if the dog actually gets it, that they understand, you know, the specific human But there's also a ground disturbance that goes with that. As they're staying there, you can see that they've been created. And then when you have these really bad sinking days, um, you'll find that the dog has the ability to you know, and you can come back and you can start working that disturbance where you know, really can, really can. And then when it comes into a normal odor, then you fix up the odor again. This is why people don't realize how extremely important it is to work your dog on different surfaces. And, you know, not just to work on, on certain type of surfaces or very soft surfaces, because I've had dogs that work really nice on soft surfaces and the moment they come to me where it's very rocky and very dry you realize the dogs are just working ground disturbance they're not even worried about generic human odor yeah and that would be you know for us hound hunters that would be guys on the coast hunting the marshes and the swamps and the the stuff like that and then you got your dry ground guys Mm -hmm. out west um you know southwest arizona new mexico Mm -hmm. um same i mean you're it's the same thing, exactly what you're saying. Mm. So, Clinton, we Excellent. we we um we've got about an hour in. What is there anything that you? I mean, we could keep going on and on and on about training and elements, and <laughs> you know, I love the conversation. I love to learn. Um, is there anything that you want to leave us with? Anything you want to add or take away about the conversation we've had today? I honestly think that, you know, especially with the young dogs, and, you know, this goes for most canine disciplines, I think slow is fast. Um, There's absolutely no rush. You're looking at a project for a dog that's going to serve you five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years if you're blessed. Um, You know, give him a lot of exposure, but, you know, don't over overwork the dog um you know i see especially with the malinois having this incredible workability i see people doing things with four-month-old puppies and um you know it's all good and well but i i think that you know 
there's a, a time for everything. I think let that dog be a puppy. Allow that dog to to make his mistakes. You know, just give him opportunities, and um, you know, don't try and you know up up the ante the whole time. Get that dog to the point where he's both comfortable and where he's enjoying it. And then, you know, give him a bit of a break, take him out again. You know, I found, you know, us guys that are totally addicted to, let's say, trailing, for instance, or hunting, it gets to the point where it becomes so self-serving that you're doing it for yourself. And, and, you know, you're pushing harder and harder. I have, you know, really passionate guys, and I train them up with a trailing hound. And I'm getting all of these, you know, tracks coming through daily and the guys are really putting in the time. And then a month forward, I get a phone call. The dog is messing around. And I, you know, try and find out what's happening. And I say, well, the dog is leaving the trail. He's showing interest in a lot of other things. And I'm like, how long was your last trail? No, it was about four kilometers, the previous one. Oh, that was six kilometers. And then I say to them, all right, listen carefully. Put the dog in the kennel. Feed it, water it, forget about it for five days. <laughs> and then take it out and put it on a trail and tell me what you see. And 99% of the time they come back and I say the dog was 100% on point. And I always ask people, why do dogs trail? Because they enjoy it. You know, that's the only reason. Um, you know, and if you've got a young dog and he's, he's a superstar and he's doing really well, what do we do? We, we start expecting more of him. We start increasing his workload. And, you know, at some point that, that dog is going to, it's probably going to burn out a little bit. Um, I've done it myself. You know, I've, I've worked dogs to the point where I could see the, the desire. The dog will go through the motions for you, but the desire is completely gone. So I think, you know, let puppies be puppies. Enjoy them. Lay your foundation. Rather spend time on your, on your foundation with you know, get, get, them, get them out, get them socialized. Um, this is the biggest issue I see with Malinois. People are so busy trying to get the dogs to bite. They're not socializing the dogs. They're not getting the dogs stable. They're not getting the dogs environmentally sound. Um, you know, getting a Malinois to bite is not a particularly difficult task, but there's a lot of other work that needs to be done, you know, to make the dog a, a stable, suitable dog. So from my side, I think sometimes we get so caught up in our passion that we forget it's actually about the dogs. And um, you've got to take a step back. And what I've also seen a lot, um, you know, we, we expect our older dogs to teach our younger dogs. And I think we run our younger dogs with the packs too soon. Mm. I don't think we put enough individual. I'm not a hound hunter, but I don't think we put enough time into that individual dog before we start introducing them to packs. I see a lot of dogs just... You know, if I go out, we've got a lot of uh, hog hunters. And if I see a vehicle and 22 dogs bail out of the back of that vehicle, I know that guy's just, you know, he's not a serious hunter because he needs 22 hounds, um, you know, to catch something. And then he needs another two days to get all his dogs back. You know, if I see a <laughs> guy that stops and he's got, if he's got three hounds bailing out the back, then I know that guy has got three really good solid dogs. You know, they all know what they're supposed to do. Um, you know, so I think, you know, take time. You know, you've got such a long time with that pup. And, um, you know, take time with that specific dog. Don't rush it. Go back to foundation. If you're battling, go right back to the start and make sure that the dog's desire for the work is there. Um, you know, if we start pushing the pups too hard, some pups can take it. But, you know, I've seen it with myself. I've got pups here that... 
you know, I've just really been taking it easy with. Um, these are now, you know, that shepherd and Mullen was, I've, I've allowed them to grow at their own pace. We'll do a bit of bite work. We'll do a little bit of scent imprinting with them, but it's nothing serious. We just, you know, we get them out and, and we, we just allow them to be dogs. And I think in the long run, it's just a lot easier for those dogs. When we start putting the, the mental stress on them, they actually be capable of absorbing yeah, I, I think that's great advice, and I have said this, um, and I'm guilty of actually what you're saying. It it has been through my career, um, especially in the hunting world, more self-serve than for the dogs. Um, it's more about the dogs now. Uh, I don't run my dogs every day because they need that downtime. They need that rest. And then back on the puppies, like every dog matures differently, and – we really see it in the the canine the 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 canine world, like what you're talking about with the Mallies and the Shepherds and the Dutchies. You see those four month old puppies being pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. They've got to be allowed to be a puppy. They've got to be able to mature and grow. And I have said exactly what you have just told us um, in the bear hunting world. When a dog sets back or something goes on, or especially if I get a dog hurt, if I get a young if I get a young dog hurt, I put him up. I let his mind reset. Yeah. I take him, I let him I don't put the stress and pressure on him. I don't take him right back out the next day and dump him on another one to see how he's gonna react. I give him some time off. You know, I give him time to reset. Um Clinton, that's great advice. Like that is that is great advice. So, you know, you guys listening should really, really step back and think about it and really do the stuff that, 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 we're, that we're talking about because it will make a huge difference in your training and ultimately in your overall performance of the dog. So, Clinton, I can't thank you enough. Like I said, we may have another conversation because these are so good. It's so full of uh, education, um, and it's so funny. Like I said, we're two con- we're a continent t- two continents away, and the same practices and principles, tactics and tricks work no matter where you're at. Um, and the more of those things you can have in your in your backpack, and you can pull from a better trainer and handler and the more enjoyable it's going to be for you to own and train these dogs. Definitely. I think the synergy, you know, with the world that has become a global village, you know, it's just wonderful being able to share information and knowledge with uh, like-minded people. You know, so I I suppose, you know, technology does have its upsides. And it's always nice knowing, you know, what people are doing on the other side of the pond and realizing that there is definitely a golden thread, you know, that that works right across, be it law enforcement, be it hunting, you know, dog is a dog. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they all have the same basic needs. And, um, you know, if we start training dogs out of a dog's point of view, instead of, you know, trying to train the dogs out of our point of view, things just happen so much easier. And, you know, you can't teach scent to a dog. A dog can, through self-discovery, learn. So the more we give the dogs the opportunities to figure things out and be successful, you know, the happier they are. And, you know, I've even had dogs with, um, you know, 
over-aggressive dogs, dogs with aggression issues, where I've just done a bit of scent work with them, and it just balances those dogs out completely without doing anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> it's good stuff. Clinton, as always, <laughs> we end the podcast with thank you for helping us teach, train, and definitely learn. This was a great learning session, so thank you. Always lovely talking to you. Keep well, Heath.